This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Fong Lee, CFO of MicroStrategy, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode number 518. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Pete Tantillo, CFO of Rapid Ratings. As our listeners know well, the CFOs of fast-growth firms begin their careers in a variety of places. We'd argue few of Pete Tantillo's CFO peers likely began their careers where he did. Still, we'd wager quite a few wish they could replicate the experience he entered the C-suite with. Our interview with Pete Tantillo begins after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. offers users, and, and Pete will explain this more to us uh, as we go along here, but it's an analytic system that provides insights into third-party partners, suppliers, vendors, allowing users to better manage their, their financial risk. Pete, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Pleased to be here. So, Pete, we want to begin where we always do, which is to have you Tell us a little bit about yourself and those past experiences you feel prepared you for a CFO role. What comes to mind for you? I think for me, if I think about the CFO role, there's all different flavors of CFOs today. 
the traditional track might be one in which you rise up through an accounting function being perhaps the controller, then a VP of finance, then on your way to CFO. That isn't really the path that I took. Uh, I have a, a more operational background. I started my career in public accounting where I got my pedigree way back when it was still the big eight uh, for your listeners. And maybe some folks remember that. And after that, I then tracked into a business role where I got involved with technology and spent a lot of time working in implementing and integrating systems to the finance world. And at, from that, I leveraged myself into a technology role where I worked for companies like SAP and MISIS over the course source of my career. And I've been in that field ever since working in companies that are technology or software-based. Now, can we, can we step back to that, that period, which I think is awful interesting, Pete, because the early part of your career – is a little different from most CFOs, and you've had, I should mention up front here, you've had several CFO tours of duty, uh, quite a few actually. So uh, today there's no question um, you're a time-tested CFO. Step back to the 90s, and it seems to me like you could have gone any one of a number of directions, and uh, and, and I think you're, you're – years at SAP, where you built part of your career for sure, you had a good deal of responsibility there, um, you could have gone any one of a number of directions. Uh, am I right about that, or were you beginning to get focused on a, on a CFO path? I think you're spot on with that. I am sort of a little bit of an accidental CFO, if I could use those terms. I purposely took a role in uh, business, I actually went to a client of mine from public accounting, and we got involved with uh, basically at the time ERP selection and ended up with SAP, and I was tasked to run the finance side of the SAP implementation, and I really loved the work. I loved the project management. I loved the technology. I loved the challenges that were brought about by it, and so much so that at that time, this is going back to maybe the mid-1990s when there was a radical shift in technology from traditional mainframe disk-based storage to client-server, and SAP was about to explode on the scene with their client-server software, which then became kind of a global standard adopted by Fortune 100 companies, and uh, there was a period of very, very rapid growth in the late 1990s when there was just an explosion of need for resources, both in the both, both in the technology side, but also in the consulting firms such as Accenture or PricewaterhouseCoopers that needed to implement and install the software for their clients. So I kind of uh, got into that and swept up into that, having had the experience at doing that myself and then ended up basically at SAP for 13 years where I spent a large part of my career actually in the field running different permutations of a services business either regional or industry-flavored. So all along the way, you're, you're really looking into that finance function, understanding uh, sort of its role and how it wants to empower uh, the business. Let's zero in on your uh, transition chapter where 
uh, yeah, you sort of set your sights on finance and finance leadership. Yes, I guess what happened actually, you know, this is something that everything would be. I, I got a call from an old mentor of mine at Etiki, who had been at Etiki and then since left, uh, that she was at a company called Micus, which was a global fintech and healthcare firm specializing in software for both the capital markets, retail banking, and the healthcare industry. And you know, the company was in the midst of a turnaround and was looking for talent. And what was needed there was they had kind of overhauled the entire strategic go-to-market for the business and were looking at services as a key element to drive growth in the turnaround program. And uh, my mentor was the individual who was tasked to be the GM of that unit, and, and she was looking for a finance business partner. So it was really right in my sweet spot because it leveraged my talent as a financial uh, professional along with my ability to understand the dynamics of how a uh, software and services firm works. So I, I went in there to uh, basically to be a divisional CFO, and I had responsibility for all of the service and support functions across the different business units within MISIS, which was a, a fantastic opportunity to build a team and work with a lot of global colleagues to promote consistency and approaches across the service support business, which was something unique uh, for them at the time because they had run the business prior to the turnaround in very siloed companies that they had acquired over many years, which they didn't have any kind of synergy or leverage across the, across the unit. So that was a very exciting kind of restructuring and rebuilding period of time. And so it was at that point I actually put my finance hat back on and I dual reported to the corporate CFO who sat in London, and but I was really the business partner for this general manager slash mentor that I spoke about. Now, uh, prior to your arrival at Rapid Ratings, there were a number of other uh, CFO tours of duty, as I mentioned. But I'm wondering if you could just uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about what were the circumstances that allowed you to arrive there. What Rapid Ratings has been in the U.S. operating since 2007, primarily through a bootstrap fundraising process that our founders had commenced over you know, eight or nine years. They had decided they wanted to take in some institutional capital and selected a private equity growth firm that uh, put in the first round of capital. They by, basically said they bypassed the VC round and just went right to, to private equity. And it was through that firm that I had a connection. I was actually in between roles at the moment looking for my next opportunity, and that's how I ended up here. So I, I mentioned up front, I, I try to characterize the offerings, but I'm sure you can do this better. How would you describe these offerings? Yes, I think you did a really good job, Jack. We're transforming the way companies look at financial viability of their third-party business relationships, and that crosses a number of different industry segments and use cases. But a very common one is, as you mentioned, supply chain risk management. And our business is really around providing transparency into financial health, which is our defined term, of company's supply chain business partners. So imagine a company like McDonald's, which has 
suppliers around the world which want to be able to understand the financial viability of those suppliers so that they can rely that they're not going to have a disruptive disruptive event to their supply chain, such as, you know, they can't get the heat delivered or something to make orders around the world. So they came to us and basically are monitoring all their critical suppliers for financial health, and they've built us into their scorecard for managing vendors across the world for key risks related to financial viability and health. Then, of course, it's typically in a large organization like McDonald's, uh, uh, done in parallel to other types of risks that they monitor in their supply chain, such as uh, sustainability or corporate social governance or things like that, that also are, you know, things like um, weather-related risks or unstable regimes or things like that in the supply chain. So we have a seat at the table now in this risk management in the supply chain, and very savvy companies uh, are, are really focusing on that as a, as a key risk element uh, to avoid supply chain disruption. Similarly, we also provide a, a basic similar service in the financial services world where there is some regulation from the OCC that banks and other regulated institutions need to understand their third-party customer and supplier relationships. So we do supply uh, our, our services and solution set to financial institutions for purposes of monitoring the financial availability of things like their IT suppliers, some of the different third-party firms that they might be doing business, and so forth. And then we also have our solution set available for use in an alternative credit model where we are able to replace traditional credit-rated models such as you might find from a Dun & Bradstreet or a Moody's with our alternative sort of scoring and, and metrics which are proven out to be a uh, superior solution to some of the existing payment-based scores that are already been in the market for many years. That was a lot to unpack, I hope, but uh, hopefully that was good. As you arrive and you look around, you assess the team, you're understanding the capital structure of the company, what, what are your priorities as a finance leader when you first arrive there? My, well, first my priority was, you know, the new, the first CFO that the company had ever had, I think there was a small accounting function and it really served its purpose well, which was to just basically report out and provide the basic reporting that was needed at the time. However, the implications of receiving a capital infusion from a private equity firm raised the bar a notch, and so it was expected that the company would hire a CFO, and to their credit, our founders were looking for someone who had the sort of skill set that matched uh, up to my, uh, my, my, my type of, uh, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, their skills, what they were trying to, what they were trying to do was look for someone with very operational skills, and that matches up what I do very well. And so, my charter here was to, let's say, sort out all of the different accounting reporting elements that were needed to be able to report to the investors, but also to make sure that all of the transaction flows worked properly, that we were properly recording revenue, and there was no revenue recognition issues that, uh, you know, kind of like upgrading everything and make sure it was in compliance with GAAP and things like that. So that's sort of my charter. Basically, when I go into any new company, I'm, you know, I've been working pretty much at this now for a better part of 10 years, and go in, assess, and make sure that we see some alignment and then upgrade from there. After that, my primary goal is to focus on helping our leadership achieve profitable revenue growth and be able to uh, meet the strategic plans that the company has set forth for the investors. 
Now, you've been there about three years. Are there any, uh, would you describe them as milestones, perhaps, uh, given what you just shared? Are there, were there certain milestones that you could punctuate what's been accomplished for us? Well, I think it was, uh, I think it was uh, you know, early on, I think we sorted out all of the different uh, elements of reporting and agreed upon and aligned metrics, which were interesting and uh, relevant for our investors, as well as ones that I felt that we needed to focus on and, you know, rally around as a business. So that was kind of the first step that was accomplished. And then over, over time, I also uh, became responsible for HR and legal functions within the business, which um, were transitioned over to me. So I, I, I added those in. We are, we always had in our first round of capital infusion a plan that the company would need to raise money in by 2018. So that was another big milestone because we closed our new round with a different investor group last year, and that was a, a, a large amount of work, as you might imagine. And so now it's all about growing the top line and um, being uh, on a greater path to more, more profit and more cash flow. So what, what are the, uh, the metrics that are top of mind for you these days? The most important thing that we look at is the growth in our ACV or annual contract value. That's the key thing that is the go-forward metric and the health and one which our investors are keenly focused on. They want to see the top the top line grow, and with ACV, that's a good measure of the future revenue stream of the business because we're a SaaS-based platform, so therefore all the revenue stream is essentially a calculation based upon contract and subscription length, and so that's that is, in a certain way, a little bit more mechanical in a SaaS-based business than some of the other companies that I worked at over the years, which had, you know, certainly SAP and others had on-premise revenue, and that was very different than just SaaS-based revenue. So it was more um, contingent upon the results of a quarter and, and more and, and less predictable. Whereas with a SaaS-based business, the revenue side is basically predictable very easily based upon the contracts that you have on your books. But what you really need to do is scale the ACV to be able to drive that future revenue stream. So that's the top of mind for me. And then I look, the other thing that is very important to me is just our cash spend. So I'm on top of that all the time in terms of what the outflow is and what, you know, different types of requests for things that may or may not be in the budget and whether the company can really afford to do that type of spending at that point in time, and which decisions I evaluate strategically with the leadership team and, and my boss I have to believe that, uh, as you described, when you first arrived there, uh, the accounting systems were pretty early stage. You've done this a couple of times now. You've stepped in and helped uh, companies take, you know, take the next step as far as adopting new technologies and systems. Uh, certainly, your SAP background made you very familiar and uh, comfortable with taking these sort of leaps, I would imagine. Other CFOs who have to uh, perhaps rely more on uh, the IT smarts. Uh, uh, you know, you have uh, sort of been in that environment for so long. I have to believe uh, you, you have a comfort level with it. Uh, but what would you tell us about this time when, it took, when you took, that, uh, took the systems to the next level? Um, are there things you don't feel necessary to do anymore? Are, are, meaning I, I have to believe 
you know what to avoid. You have sort of an instinct at this point. Uh, am I describing it correctly or no? How would you describe yourself in that percent? I, I think that I think that's fair. I, I you're spot on with the fact that having spent 15 years in the city, I kind of know where the pitfalls are and how technology can enable or cause a effort to go way off the rails if you don't have the right, let's say, decision making capabilities or engagement from the business and, and implementation and things like that. And that's just not finance expertise. And so coming in here, the company had already made a decision to select a, a, uh, a financial package. Am I allowed to say the name of it? Is it that? Um, okay. And the so that was actually underway, and they had just started a project to basically put in a general ledger. They were upgrading from QuickBooks, as a lot of companies in this space do. And this was my first experience in implementing Intact. I had previously done SAP, of course, NetSuite, and uh, some other things with Micron, which uh, I was very pleased to see uh, was, a, was it actually a really good fit for us. And uh, I also upgraded the talent pool when I was uh, first on board here and, you know, shifted some folks around and, and hired a new VP uh, of finance who was just really awesome with capability and technology and, and getting things done. And he really headed up the kind of transition to a full-blown impact suite. Where we made a huge, where we made a huge leap was last year when we adopted the what Intact is calling their it's agent act now, their contracts module, which basically takes all of the traditional orders and customer data and puts it all in a contract form, which is perfect for subscription. It does all of the automation, and we then uh, tied it into Salesforce so that you have a seamless process from opportunity in Salesforce all the way through recognizing revenue and billing and collecting cash from customers. One of my biggest concerns always at, at any company I've worked at was finance and in, 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 in sales, let's say, in a silo in terms of producing numbers. So I would be in a board meeting and have a set of numbers on bookings, and uh, then the head of sales comes in with a different set that came out of Salesforce. Those two things can reconcile, and obviously that's something that they can only make one time. But reconciling that is a thing of the past here, and everything flows. And so it takes all of that kind of busy work that would normally be done by an accounting person and just throws it up a little bit. So we have a very automated process here. It was well worth the investment. And we try to do everything here in an automated way, and I'm not averse to technology or spending a little bit of money on getting things integrated because then down the road I can have a much more effective and efficient accounting system in the business. You, you've also uh, today have the title COO, is that right? And you kind of advanced into a larger role. You mentioned HR, uh, but uh, can you can you tell us what uh, what the COO title means for you? Right. So I also have a responsibility over, I would say, what we call our client success field organizations and uh, and operations. So those are the folks who are basically support in the SaaS model. So they're responsible for the renewal, well, firstly, the implementation and onboarding of clients, as well as training and getting them up to speed with the usage of our solution set, followed by we have a very high-touch client success model where we do quarterly reviews with most, if not all, of our clients to ensure that the programs that they spent money on are becoming very sticky and that they're getting the most usage out of our solution set and the best leverage that they 
across organizational as well as collaborative projects that the CEO or the president throw my way to rally around getting different functions uh, aligned around processes and things like that. Have you adopted uh, uh, a customer success platform yet or, or, you know, some of the technologies that are out there? Is that a piece of this as well? We use a couple of different things, and we do have part of it in Salesforce. And then we also have the Atlassian Suite, Jira, and Confluence that we use to track a lot of our client success data, and such as all our documentation, visit notes, and as well as ticketing related to uh, trouble tickets or hotline calls or things like that are, are always maintained in Atlassian. Um, so we, we may not be as, uh, as sophisticated as maybe a, 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 a business which has you know, thousands and thousands of customers uh, in terms of automation and call center uh, and IDR and that sort of thing, but uh, eventually we hope to get there. CFO Pete Tantillo shares a finance strategic moment after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. All right, it's uh, time for me to ask you our signature question, or at least what I like to refer to as our signature question, which is for a finance strategic moment, and I think you've already shared some of those, but when you look back across your career back, and uh, it might be in the present uh, role, it might have been earlier, uh, was there a moment of strategic insight that you experienced as a finance leader or senior finance executive, given your lines of sight into the organization, that led you to change the direction of your team, of the organization, was there a finance strategic moment that you can share with us? Actually, we have a, obviously as a, not, a, not a, a, a large company. We have a very small, close to the leadership team. So we meet periodically in addition to just talking to each other all the time. And as we go through our priorities and our strategic plans in terms of product development and uh, product management and, and development, we looked at uh, a number of, like we had a core product and that we had sold for, you know, 10 years and was highly successful. And we, the, the, the tech team had identified a, uh, a, a way to create a new product which would be directly uh, com competitive with companies like on Bradstreet, where uh, it was more of a um, kind of instantaneous score that could be derived for our clients, but it would be better than just the types of information that our competitors are collecting. So to expand on that, our traditional competitors uh, rely a lot on payment data. So basically, 
a measure of how fast you pay your bills, which was a concept that was great in the 1960s when there was nothing else that was available, but today is not necessarily tethered to best practices in terms of financial well-being, and I could be a company in distress, and I could be paying my bills on time and burning through cash. Uh, similarly, I could be a large conglomerate in the pharmaceutical industry that requires 120-day payment terms, and if you want to do business with us, they can remove it, and yet that company is, is reaping billions of dollars of profit from, from brand discounts. So it's less relevant than it used to be, and also there's a degree of subjectivity in that you can collect services from this these payment uh, score people to enhance your score if you subscribe to some of their other services that they have on the market. So our data is based uh, primarily, we don't do any of that, we don't have any influence, we don't have any sort of ability or, or desire to have anything other than just let the numbers speak for themselves. So we have what we think is a more robust score that's enriched by our expanding database of public and private company financial statements that we uh, have been at now for 10 plus years. And so as a matter of like, in talking through that, it came occurred to me that that is something strategically that, you know, if monetized properly, could be a real game changer for the business and allow us to augment and flush out our product line with some additional funds allocated to our technology side of the house, both from a product management as well as a technical sense to flush out that concept and build something. And that, that the product uh, is called HealthMark, and we launched it earlier this year, and we're already seeing a very large uptake in the market from our existing clients who are interested in that and want to have a single source provider. Uh, like rapid ratings, be able to handle all of these sort of reviews of supplier health that, that they need and not have to use multiple systems. So I would say the finance the finance strategic moment was just realizing that potential marketability of this product and being able to allocate, a, you know, and work through with the leadership team how to best fund it. Uh, and I think that's where the, the finance need becomes much more strategic asset to the CEO and the leadership of the business and the investors and the board because he or she has insights into what's going on and can really help strategically to think through the implications of the business plan that and how to put numbers down to that that you can then uh, work towards. Okay. Well, we're going to jump to our mentoring round. We're going to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor future finance leaders. What is it that's exciting you today about finance and business? I think that one of the interesting things is if you uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, material being published there around artificial intelligence and how that's transforming the uh, finance industry at the low end. Uh, I have uh, I have a son who works in public accounting and he sees the you know, way the introduction of you know, more automation in the audit area and extraction and basically the, the sort of logic that allows the computer to do a lot of these tasks that back in the day when I was doing this were very menial and uh, somewhat uh, um, boring, quite frankly, to do, which um, allows you to then allow, and then the artificial intelligence taking over things like looking through the database of transactions using some sort of intelligence to mine for different types of entities. 
surgery that could be either uh, questionable or things that are abnormal or things like that. And I think that that's really, really interesting, and I think that then takes the folks who are working in, in these sort of junior roles in finance and elevating them to more uh, kind of like data insights and data mining analysts than really just, uh, you know, pure number punchers or just, uh, you know, auditing or things like that. So I think that, for me, is a really interesting thing, and I think it elevates the finance function to, uh, you know, to a level of sophistication that hasn't occurred before. And I think it's a shift in actually roles uh, across the, the whole finance organization where you start to see people with more um, data analytics degrees and mining and things like that coming into the profession uh, who otherwise might not have existed. What is that piece of information that you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career when you stepped into that role for the first time? What's that piece of information you wish you had that day? Um, I, you know, I think that the the thing that I wish someone had sat me down and told me was, you know, sometimes, and this applies to, to your personal life, I would suppose, I have five children and my wife always says, you know, choose your battles and know when to keep your mouth shut. And I think that that is something that carries over into the business world. So in the CFO role, you're obviously engaged at a very high level and in pretty much all business, there's a lot of agendas and sometimes hidden, sometimes not politics, and people who have their own missions and accomplishments and things they need to get done, but it's all about building relationships and knowing when to speak up and knowing when to let things happen. And I think if someone had crystallized that for me and just sort of sat me down and said, you know, you're going to be dealing with a lot of different situations, just, just uh, you know, sometimes the first the first thing that might cross your mind in a situation may not be the best way. So, you know, you need to, you need to sometimes think through things. Do you have a personal habit or routine you believe has contributed to your professional success? Well, I do, I do follow that, I do follow that rule. Um, I try to be very business partner oriented and I, I, I do in, in business with my teams and everyone who works for me and, in, in a, let's call it a traditional quote-unquote back office role, that they realize that they're, they're for uh, customers, and those customers are certainly internal customers, but they're also external customers, whether you're picking up the phone and answering a question about an invoice that doesn't make sense, or whether you're dunning a customer because they haven't paid us, or whether you're answering someone's question about uh, – you know, a bill that, that they're waiting for from us, or those kinds of things. You're always dealing with people, and it's all about it's all about that. So I try to drive that down. And the way I, I kind of do that, and over the years, I've gotten into things like um, actual mind, mindfulness and things, other programs which have helped me mentally. I have a long commute to get to my job every day, and I use that time to sort of have a buffer and think. You know, you know, kind of straighten my mind out and get ready for the next day so that I'm, uh, you know, in control. And I think that's helped me a lot of Certain finance leaders have uh, been able to build their career in, in just one geography, and I, I think that might be your story as well. Others have to move quite a bit or have moved quite a bit. And um, I just want to point out, yours, of course, with uh, SAP in Newtown, Pennsylvania, or uh, what's, what's the uh, – I'm sorry, the name of the town they're based in there. Newtown Square. Newtown Square, that's it. Um, uh, and the New York 
uh, New Jersey sort of geography. Uh, thankfully, with that many, uh, let's say, offspring, you didn't have to move too often. Uh, is that correct, or how would you uh, what would you share with us about uh, relocation and the necessity of it in your career? I have been pretty fortunate. I live in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is sort of equidistant. I would say it's closer to Philadelphia. It's a Philadelphia suburb, but I can easily get to New York City and northern New Jersey through you know, major transportation routes like the New Jersey Turnpike or Amtrak, where I can be in New York City in an hour on the train. So it opens up a, a wide swath of uh, ability to be able to commute day in and day out between either New York or uh, Philadelphia, and probably even Wilmington, if I would consider that, but uh, mostly banking there and chemicals. So uh, I'm in a really good spot where I have that kind of flexibility. I think I have always told people I'm open to relocation, but I have a large family, and it's you know, a matter of personal decision about your ability. And I think most companies in the spaces that I'm working in uh, want to ensure that they found the right person as to the person that's taking the job. So I think most companies these days are open to a sort of try-before-you-buy approach where you can rent an apartment for a year and commute to see how that is and before you uproot your children from school and move them to a different part of the country. But certainly, you know, certainly that the, the days of, you know, working for a company like GE or someone where they, you know, by nature move you around from year to year, to different cities and overseas and things like that in order to advance your career still exists, but that's just a personal choice if you want to work for one of those companies. I think a lot of people have gotten tremendous experience from relocating to either a different part of the U.S. or overseas, and but just for me, it just wasn't in the car. Well, thank you for sharing with us some of the details uh, behind where your uh, professional and private life uh, intersects. I don't ask about... Um, Let's call it professional geography um, every every time. But I, I find it's really where some of the hardest decisions have to be made at certain times. And, and, and these decisions do impact careers and they impact families. Uh, so, so thanks for letting us go there. And I'm going to move on to our, our book selection, if there's a book you'd like to recommend uh, to our audience. I do actually. I didn't. I didn't pick it up and, and read it myself, uh, as you might as you might do on Amazon. Uh, our HR leadership uh, picked out a book for the leadership team to read as a group recently, and the book title of the book was "What." I don't want to go. I don't want to mess this up. What got you here won't. What got you here won't get you there. So essentially. The, the book is about how even very successful people in their career are, because the world has changed so much, you know, just with the Internet and it sounds very cliche, social media now and all of the different technologies as, uh, on the one side, plus the change in workforce as the workforce gets younger and the different sort of cultural and, and, and demographic values. So basically just resting on your laurels and expecting that the same level of performance or what what techniques you might have used at your job before might need to be looked at or changed or reevaluated in light of what you're doing now. And so it's all about change, change management, personal change management, uh, recognizing your strengths and weaknesses and how to how to drive towards, you know, being a more effective leader. And I really got a lot out of that book. So 
Um, it's, a, it's a really fast read, and it's one of those things you can read and digest pretty easily uh, while you're on the train or flying somewhere or something like that. Okay. Great, great choice. We're up to our final question where I get to ask you to look forward and uh, share with us your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months. Well, that's very simple. It's just continue and, and, and basic. It's more, more, more profitable revenue growth and a great growth in ACV. That's what this business is all about. And my job, obviously, is the first part of that, too, which is maintaining the profitability. So you always – a mentor of mine taught me this one phrase a, a long, long time ago, and I try to abide by it, which is always keep your foot on the gas and the brake and hover over the brake at the same time so that you're not – uh, overspending and, uh, and suddenly in a reactionary situation where you have to go through this massive round of cutbacks or pull, pullbacks and things like that. You're always, as a good CFO, keeping your mind, mind on, the, on the bottom line, the cash flow, and how those things impact the revenue growth because it's uh, the world that we live in and our, our job here at Random Ratings is to exponentially scale this business over the next three to five years, uh, but not at any cost. We have to maintain a reasonable cost structure and use our assets and Tantillo, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. You're welcome, Jack. It's a pleasure. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or, if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.